Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Delighted to welcome Claire Delarial who is a Buddhist Dharma teacher with a focus on bringing Tibetan wisdom into modern life. Claire will be speaking to us today from Quebec. Claire began meditating in 1997 and has spent much time in both personal and group retreats since 1999. She has made trips to Thailand, India, and Nepal to study and meditate in traditional settings in those countries with pilgrimages to Tibet. She earned her doctorate in religious studies from Rice University in Houston with a dissertation that explored contemplative ways of knowing and how they speak to the contemporary academic study of mysticism. Claire is a former programs director for Dawn Mountain Center for Tibetan Buddhism in Houston, Texas, and she is also a former board member for Compassionate Houston. She is currently a member of the Gen X which I found that that's the generation followed that followed the baby boomers, the Gen X Dharma teachers community and a faculty fellow at the Young Center in Houston, Texas. I'm looking forward to talking with Claire about the paranormal experiences she experienced during following her mom's passing, how practicing what is known as the Dharma has supported her during both difficult and peak moments in her life, what the Tibetan teachings on reincarnation can teach us about living well, the book she's writing on Buddhist basics for everyday life, and more. This will surely be an unusually enlightening and very interesting interview that can help each of us cultivate greater peace and joy in our lives. Hey, Claire, a heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Thank you so much. I hope this does help everyone cultivate peace and joy both. You know, just your countenance is filled with peace and joy. It's a pleasure to, to, to talk with you. It's just, it's really, it's just, you know, you feel the, you feel that beautiful vibe. Thank you so much. That's so beautiful. So let's start with this question. Please tell us about your mom's passing in 2007 the paranormal experiences you had that led you to the study of reincarnation and illustrate the ideas of life transitions as rebirths. Were you originally a very religious person, Claire? You know, I was raised in the Church of Christ, which is kind of a fundamentalist Protestant sect. And when I was young, the whole idea of God and the divine, it really spoke to me. And then as I got older, I kind of started to realize like, wait, this bit doesn't make sense. And that bit doesn't make sense. So by the time I got to, you know, college as an 18 year old, I was kind of, I was kind of done with the old and ready for something new. (laughs) (laughs) And so what happened with your mom? Your mom passed in 2007. 
um, where were you in your life and what happened that led you to the story, the study of reincarnation? Yeah. So, you know, by that point, I had already been Buddhist for 10 years, if my math is right. And, um, you know, the, the study of the Dharma, the practice of the Dharma is really important to me, but I wouldn't say I believed in, you know, reincarnation or really anything beyond the, the physical realm. Um, I, I would have said I was agnostic about it, but really, I think I just didn't believe in it. But then what I experienced with my mom's passing, it, it just rocked my world. I mean, my world was already rocked to lose my mom. But then what I experienced the afternoon that she passed away, you know, while she was passing away, I was focused on her, trying to support her. And, you know, I just felt all this sadness. Now, how old were you at that time? Oh, I was 30. I think I was 30, 29 or 30. And um, so I, I walked outside from the room where she passed away later that afternoon. And what happened was just, it felt like somebody opened a door and I felt her joy that, that she was, she was fine. She was on the other side, which is not really other, you know, maybe we can talk about that it's later. Kind of, well, let's talk about that. Cause it's really right here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think it was the first time I really got, you know, a lot of these teachings about the afterlife are not about after they're about who we are now. And, and we can get into that later. Yeah, but that's because this is so, it's so much fun and it so applies to the world, to real life. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what I felt in that afternoon, it, you, you've probably heard the idea of a phantom limb where somebody's hand gets cut off, but they still feel sensations as if they had a hand. I felt like that happened to me, but, but spiritually, you know? So all of a sudden I had gained like this um, sensory apparatus on the so-called other side. Like I was kind of, I felt aware of what she was going through as she left oh. that life. Um, over the next weeks and months, I felt as though every now and then I would just get a flash of connection with her. And I would just get like this little glimpse into what her process was as she left behind that lifetime. What a blessing. Had you always been so sensitive to those things? Oh, no, not that um, I know of. I maybe as a kid, but definitely this was the first time that I kind of had that that form of sensitivity. And it blew my mind. It kind of freaked me out, if I'm being honest. Um, I relate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but at the same time, what I felt was so real. And, you know, I, I was able to distinguish it from my own imagination because it took me by surprise. I didn't expect to walk out and just get hit with a wave of someone else's experience. So that really was what kind of cracked the door open for me to begin to start questioning in the first place. Right. And, and uh, so that led you to the study of reincarnation and the ideas of life transitions as rebirths, which we need to talk about also. And just for people who don't know, what do you, what do you mean when you refer to the, you're getting into the Dharma? Oh, yes. I was getting into the study and the practice of Buddhism. So is not just the Dharma. Yeah, exactly. So the Dharma. What does Dharma mean? What is that a word that means something? It, it is. It's a very important word. It's a Sanskrit word. Um, for those who are familiar with Buddhism, you also hear the word Dhamma in Pali. But basically the word Dharma, it's shared between Buddhism, Hinduism, and some other Indian-based religions. But what it means in a, in a Buddhist context is the truth 
It can also mean the path to the truth, the teachings of the truth. So it's really about the orientation toward what is ultimately true and meaningful. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, and that's the basis of Buddhism. Yeah. So 500 years old. Exactly. And the Buddhist would say, you know, there's Buddhist Dharma, there's Christian Dharma, there's Jewish Dharma, there's Muslim Dharma. So any path to truth is a Dharma path, according to the way Buddhists see it. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So tell us about Buddhism. How did it begin? How did it take more hold in the world? And then it's got four noble truths that are supposedly very relevant to life today. Yes, they are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So, I mean, it was very prescient. However it came about, it's still applying 2,500 years later. Exactly. Exactly. As much as things have changed, there's a lot that just hasn't. Um, So like you said, about 2,500 years ago, uh, the person who became the Buddha was born in what's now Nepal. And um, according to the stories, he lived a life of luxury early on. His father was a king who who had received a prophecy that his son would either become a great world conquering monarch, which is what the king wanted for his son, or a great sage who would, you know, spread a new Dharma through the world, which the king did not want. So he was trying to keep his son, you know, happy, not thinking about spiritual topics. And then the story goes that, you know, in his 29th year, the Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha to be kind of realized that there was suffering in the world. There was old age, sickness, death, and that that was inevitable. And so his spiritual quest was a quest to find the path beyond suffering. So the story goes that he, you know, eventually wakes up to the nature of reality and begins teaching that. And that's, what's now known as the Buddhist Dharma. And, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount in those teachings, but the four noble truths that you mentioned are, first of all, this truth often gets translated life is suffering, but I think it's more accurate to say, we're never going to get life exactly the way we want it. Um, Until we wake up, we're always going to find something wrong with our lives and be trying to fix it. And then the second noble truth is there's a cause for that. There's a cause for suffering and unsatisfactoriness. And that is At the root of it, the fact that we make mistaken assumptions about the world. It's like if we had a map that didn't match the territory where every now and then we're going to drive into a tree or drive off the road or something. The the third noble truth. I want to ask you what those mistaken assumptions are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the entire path, basically. (laughs) That's the enlightened way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, it's the fourth. So the third noble truth is that there is an end to all suffering. If there's a cause, if we stop creating the cause, the result eventually dies out. So there's an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path. So this is the path from where we are now to really uprooting our mistaken assumptions about the world and coming to see clearly, coming to see what's really happening in front of us. Can you give us an example of a, um, a mistaken assumption about the world oh, yeah. that people learn that they are con- conceiving things yes. in- incorrectly according to the Buddhist way? Absolutely. So according to Buddhism, you know, the earliest schools of Buddhism talk about three like core teachings. The first one is impermanence. So basically it means each of us is constantly changing all of the time. 
So like every time I breathe in, I'm taking new molecules into my body. Every time I breathe out, there's molecules leaving. So I'm constantly changing. But the false assumption we have is that we're more or less the same from one day to the next. And that's why when something happens and and we change drastically or like COVID happens and our whole world changes, it's so shocking because we expect everything to be the same. So that's the first of these like really important characteristics. That makes a lot of sense and people get really angry because they don't like change, but that is everything. (laughs) It's the one thing that's constant is that everything changes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like in the Buddhist teachings, even Buddhism someday is going to fall apart and, and cease to exist because it's a conditioned system. So the second big thing, and this kind of follows on from the first one, is that we think who we are doesn't really change. We think we, there's a continuity to us. And again, because of impermanence, we're constantly changing. Every time we meet somebody, they change us a little bit. And not only that, but, you know, if you think about your body, we think of it as my body, but I mean, I can't control whether or not there's cancer in my body right now, or if I lose a limb, am I suddenly not me? So, you know, we have these, again, mistaken assumptions about ourselves and everyone else around us that we're going to stay more or less the same. And that leads to the third characteristic of phenomena, which is that again, we come back to the first noble truth that it's never quite satisfactory because we're assuming we're a different type of being than what we really are. We never are quite happy with ourselves. There's always five more pounds to lose or like the roots of our hair are growing out. We need to dye it again or our vision's getting worse. You know, we're always trying to tinker with the way things are. And we always think we're about to arrive in happiness and we never quite arrive. That's really interesting. Yeah. And what is, and there's something else in, in Buddhism called the Bardo states and their teachings on the Bardo states. You want to enlighten us about, about that? Yes. So this is really something that the Tibetan Buddhist tradition spends a lot of time on. Um, so you won't necessarily hear the word Bardo in these other traditions of Buddhism, but what it means, it's a Tibetan word that just means like in between. And at the most fundamental teaching or at the most fundamental level, the teaching of the Bardo states is that really every single moment of our lives is in between past and future. Like this very moment is the one time that's real. It's the one time that we have. Um, and, And in a larger perspective, so that's like moment by moment, a teaching on the Bardo states and the larger perspective you could say one day is the time between when a sun, the sun rises and when it sets. So there's all these sort of times in between one thing and another. Um, and, and in the context of death and rebirth, which Tibetan Buddhism takes literally, what the Bardo states mean is that there are, I, I describe them as four Bardo states. Different traditions talk about different numbers, but you can break them down into four. There's the Bardo of this life, which begins when we're born and it ends when we start dying. There's the bardo of death. So as our body starts to shut down uh, during the death process, this bardo, the teachings on this bardo state describe what happens as we die. There's the bardo of clear light, which is the moment when all of our conventional sense of self, our conventional identity is completely gone and only what Buddhists call our Buddha nature is left so is that our soul is that our, our when our soul leaves our body would that be considered that or that's it depends on what you mean by soul 
So Buddhism doesn't talk about soul so much as mind. And at the most subtle level, our mind is clarity, it's luminosity. There's really no word for it, but it's that aspect of us that is sacred and connected to what's sacred. So we, we experience that fully. And then after that Bardo state comes the in-between period. So we've, we've completed the death process, but we haven't been born yet. And there's this interesting state in between where we're kind of letting go of one life and we're getting ready to go to the next, but it's possible for anything to happen in that state. So it's called the Bardo of becoming. Wow. That, that must, are there like records of people who have channeled what happened to them in those Bardo states? And yeah. that yeah. was really interesting. It is. And there are also each of those states is related to different meditative practices and things like that. So you're, you're basically practicing the whole process of death and rebirth. And people have, you know, experiences doing those meditations as well. Wow. And tell me about this with this Buddhist concept of Dharma, which is clear seeing. How has that supported you? You've had difficult times and peak periods in your life. I can't even get over that. <laughs> how would you like to tell, how has that helped you with, with your life? Yeah. You well, you know, if I think about the period when my mom was sick and we knew she was going to die, but it just, it just kind of stayed on the horizon for, you know, a couple of years for me, the teachings from the Buddhist tradition specifically about impermanence were really helpful because I think our culture often says If you're sick, you know, when you die, if only you had, I don't know, eaten better or exercised better or meditated more, you could have prevented these things. And Buddhism says, no, you can't. (laughs) We're all going to get old. We're all going to get sick and we're all going to die. And I found it very comforting to have just that like super grounded perspective on reality um, that we can do our best and we should do our best, but some things are inevitable. Right. It takes you out of the dream or the fantasy or the, uh, you know, I, it, it brings, I recently, um, had a conversation with someone and I wanted to say how in my mind, how important it was to, um, be conscious until the day that you die. And this woman yeah. jumped up and she said, don't talk to me about dying. And I was like, <laughs> why that's not going to happen to you (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) I mean even me like I've spent all this time meditating on impermanence I've lost my mom you know other important people in my life have died I still sometimes find myself saying if I die I'm gonna die you're Yeah, it's like more important, like, what's the legacy you're going to leave while you're here? Exactly. And what about your peak moments? Has it helped you with like, great times in your life? What is how's that colored your experience? Yeah, well, first of all, I think some of the peak moments of my life really have happened, you know, on meditation retreats, or because of practice, you know, because of having access to these real states of like peace or stillness or love. And I I think what practice does is it clears away the obstacles to those peak moments. Um, But also really feel them and enjoy them without anything blocking the way to them, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, And I think it makes it more likely that any moment might become a peak moment, you know, that, that you notice the sunset and you just take that like half second to appreciate it or, 
you know, all these little things in our life that it's so easy to skip by them, but they can like bring us so much joy if we let them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, there's a process, I understand, that helps our intention regarding who we want to be in our next phase of life. We get to choose that? You mean I chose this whole thing? And <laughs> what do the Tibetan teachings on reincarnation teach us about living well? And what do they define as living well? Yeah. So I want to just underscore here that the Tibetan teachings on dying are teachings for living too. You know, none of this is just about the death process. Um, to me, what's really mind-blowing about these teachings is that if you take, for instance, the Bardo state in which we fully realize our true nature as beings of light, well, if that's true when we die, it's true right now. <laughs> and, you know, so these teachings, um, they offer us, if we're practicing to die, what we're really doing is living well. Um, because we're reflecting on what's important. We're reflecting on what am I doing with my time today? Who do right. I care about? Um, right. I think I got off track from answering your question. It was, That's all it right, was but, I, I, but I'm thinking about it because in my, in, in my um, and everyone who follows this podcast basically knows that I, I got that message about be loving and kind to everyone when they pulled me out of the car and all that. And it made me very conscious. And I guess in some way I'm living the Buddhist way because I, everything I do now, I'm very conscious of my interactions with people and how I'm, I mean, I'm authentic, but I choose how I want to process things or, 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 and I am very aware of the, um, consequences or the repercussions or the impact that it has on people yeah and i would imagine that that is part of what buddhism teaches and the other part is answer this so we're on the other side and we say okay i was a funky da 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 this life what do i want to be in the next phase of life is that kind of how it works or there's i mean i know there's karma there are different things that come into how do we manifest? How do we choose who we're going to be the next time? I, I've been told that I've been a, I'm a young man in one lifetime. I've been told that I've been different religions and all different things. So how do we choose or figure that out before we manifest? <laughs> yeah, again? it's a good question. <laughs> it's, it's a really practical question to answer. Um, the Buddhist answer really is that we're choosing right now. So there's not the sense that, you know, during this Bardo state that we kind of get to step back and decide with our like rational mind what we're going to do next. You know, my, my favorite interpretation of karma is really thinking about it like momentum, like whatever we're putting our energy behind, you know, we're, we're giving that the momentum of our attention, of our focus in our life and whatever we're giving that to right now, we're just going to keep on doing it. So it's not from a Buddhist perspective, it's not that we get to, you know, after we die, we get to choose, do I want this body or that body? It's like, whatever is comfortable and familiar to us from what we're doing right now is what we're going to be drawn toward. Oh. And I think you can see this even in one lifetime, you know, what you're interested in, what you're comfortable with, you're naturally going to gravitate toward that type of art or that type of music, those type of people, whatever it is. So as we go through life now. And just like you're saying, the more we can be aware of the choices that we're making, the more we can be aware of our impact on ourselves and others, the more we're consciously shaping 
you know, maybe I want to stay committed to spiritual practice, or maybe, you know, I want to stay committed to love and care. So like the values that we have, those are the things that we're most likely to stay connected with. Even if we don't control anything else, we don't control anything, you know, but we can, it's almost like investing in, in this bank account versus that one, we're going to get drawn toward what we have the biggest investment in. But that leads me to a question. Like some of us, I'm one of them. I had a really tough childhood and all that. So, but theoretically on the other side or, or while I was in this in-between state, would I have chosen, I'm drawn to healing. So I'm going to go through this so that I can uh, help you know, guide people to healing or what I have chosen. I have karma with these people and I have things to, how does that, how does that work? How do you choose, you sort of choose the people you come back to be with, right? Or you don't? Well, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, we have these connections with each other that are really powerful. So if, if you were connected with your parents in a previous life, again, from my understanding of the Buddhist teachings, It's not the case that you decided at some point, I want to choose a childhood with these kinds of difficulties. It's like those people are familiar. You loved them before and you're drawn to them and everything that comes with them kind of comes with that. But the upside of it is going through difficulties can help you just the karma has come up. It's ripened in your life and now you're done with it. So hopefully next time you don't have to do that same thing. That sounds like a, a spectacular idea. To me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, this is also where karma is so important because if we have that that childhood and we never do anything to heal those wounds and they stay with us and we're creating that kind of experience for someone else, it's just going to keep going. So, you know, the work that you're doing is so important, not just for physical healing, but for healing those things that would otherwise just keep coming back around again and again. That's how you just, you just um, spoke the mission of grief and rebirth podcast. You really, oh, wow. this is, this is totally why I'm doing this because I want people to know they have healing choices and you don't have to stay so stuck and yeah. come back for it again. if it was just this life that'd be one thing if we're gonna have to do this again and again till we get it right time to invest some energy (laughs) what um is the timeline for reincarnating into a new life different for every soul like do do i decide i want a vacation over there for about 400 lifetimes and come back (laughs) or do i have to slide back or is someone who's not been a nice person they have to stay in a tree for a few centuries before they come (laughs) back how does does that work yeah well okay there's there's different ways to answer this question so the first thing is you know as a general rule the tibetan tradition says it takes about 49 days from the time someone dies until the time they're reborn but it could be less or more and the other thing is in the Buddhist tradition, there's not just rebirth as a human. So say that you had a difficult time of it this time, but you cleared out a lot of that karma. You've really done a lot of purification and you're just drawn to like rest for a while. There are heavenly realms, you know? So if you have the karma for that, maybe that's where you would take birth or, you know, there's 49 days of human time. That doesn't mean it's 49 days of experiential time for some other realm. So maybe that time 
for you feels like forever and it gives you an opportunity to kind of resolve some things, let go of things, get ready to move on. Um, there are also stories about people who don't realize they're dead um, and don't don't move on. And, you know, so you might say that that person kind of took rebirth as what we might call in the West, a, a ghost or something that's just right, somebody kind right, of stuck. Right. So I think it really varies, but, but for the 49 days after someone dies, people will do practices for them to try and help them through that Bardo state. Um, and they'll do as much as possible to really support them, you know, energetically. Right. But like when a medium contacts a, a person on the other side, they, they could have re reincarnated, but they're contacting the essence of who they are that's still on the other side. Is that correct? Have I got that right? That would be my interpretation. You know, there's not a strong tradition of mediumship that I'm aware of, like in Buddhist cultures. There's a lot of divination and things like that, but often people are, you know, contacting, you know, other types of beings. What I find plausible personally is um, kind of modeled on Chinese and African beliefs that there's a part of us that when we die is just dead. You know, our body is just dead. Um, there's another part of us that can go on to become an ancestor or, you know, to, to somehow stay with the people we love. And there might be another part still that actually reincarnates into a new body. I think it depends on how you understand time. And there's no real time on the other side, right? Well, I mean, again, I think it's hard for us to even understand with our ordinary minds. But my sense of things is, you know, we experience time in a linear way because of our brains, because of the type of organisms we are. But I don't think that's the only way time goes. You know, Tibetan Buddhism talks about there's this word, you know, ye, which means like primordial like from the beginning, like a, a, a realm without time, basically. So I, I think it makes sense. You know, for instance, when my mom died, she had all this love for her children and her family. I think there's some kind of echo of that that gets left behind. And maybe she did go on to reincarnate or maybe she's done. Maybe she like woke up to the nature of reality and doesn't have to come back anymore in a, in a, in a powerless way. Right, so, right. I yeah, I, I don't have like a, one answer, but I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah, no, because, you know, because um, we talk to so many people and I, and I hear a lot about the part of the soul that is on the other side, but that we can reincarnate. And even if someone you love has reincarnated, you can still connect with them and all of that kind of thing. So tell us about the Buddhist, Buddhist path to an enlightened awakening. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some people, I think, through suffering or through their lives, just kind of accidentally have awakenings. But the Buddhist, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, often if it comes through loss or grief, you didn't choose that. So the Buddhist path kind of presents a way of gradually, gradually letting go, you might say. Um, so there's... I, if you're familiar with Buddhism, you might've heard about what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a set of eight teachings to help us, um, you know, progress from here to awakened existence. But basically they fall into three categories. There's wisdom or awakening. There's ethics or morality. And then um, there's concentration or meditation, um, how we focus our mind to really be aware 
to allow us to develop the wisdom and develop our, our ethical behavior. And the idea is, you know, the Buddha's teachings are there to help us begin to question our assumptions about the world, but we have to walk the path. We have to do the meditations. We have to, you know, do the study um, and begin to understand the world differently. And, And that's really the goal of Buddhist practice, whether it's Zen or Tibetan or Theravadan, whatever it is, you know, there's all these different techniques for helping us wake up. Interesting. And, and uh, you're writing a, bo- a book on Buddhist basics for everyday life? I am. I'm actually working at the moment on a book about the Four Noble Truths. So I think oh, it's wow. going to be called The Buddhist Path to Joy. Um, so uh, I'll if anyone, have you back on to talk about that. I would love to. I would love to. And, and I do have another book kind of in the works about really the three characteristics I talked to you about, you know, how we can understand the world. So yeah, hopefully before too long, oh, <laughs> they'll yeah. be out. I'm sure you're super busy. Yeah. Um, and for people who are struggling with it or really don't know why it's important or what it is, could you talk to us please about meditation and how it can become a powerful method for cultivating peace and happiness? In addition, tell us about some of the common meditation styles and is there one that you favor? And I have even one more question with that. Can anyone <laughs> meditate, even those with busy minds and they can't sit still? So like, just give us the whole picture about <laughs> meditation because I, I, you know, there's so many different styles and different philosophies about it. And yes. So I would say in answer to your first and your third question, really the heart of meditation isn't like a certain posture or like looking super peaceful from the outside. The heart of meditation is you're, you're connecting with your own mind because we spend a lot of time, you know, trying not to feel certain things, falling into certain storylines. So you don't even have to stand still to be meditating. There's walking meditation. There's even lying down meditation, but really the heart of meditation is, is bringing together two qualities. There's resting the mind, settling the mind. And there's beginning to see into our patterns of mental behavior. So like you're watching your thoughts, basically. Yeah, exactly. Flip back and forth in in your head. Yeah. And to even be able to watch your thoughts and not just fall into them and get totally distracted, you have to have some basis in, in being able to focus your mind. So that's kind of how the two, the two parts of that come together. So then you'd see, you know, in Zen, they cultivate... Um, just the ability to sit and, and drop, you know, thoughts and things like that that come into the mind. You just sit and you're present. What do you do thoughts. if your mind is so busy, though? How do you drop all those thoughts? Okay, my mind is super busy. <laughs> and <laughs> what I usually start with in a meditation session is maybe focusing on the breath, um, maybe even focusing on specific moments in the breath. Like maybe I'm just feeling for the first moment of the in-breath. So I'm just trying to get really clear on one moment. Um, And then I shift my focus to some other part of that cycle of breathing until my mind, you have to start by giving your mind something to do. Uh And then as it does that thing, like the thing you're giving it, whether it's focusing on the breath, focusing on a mantra or whatever, that thing is not exciting. And your mind begins to kind of settle. 
And then at that point, once it's settled, then you can begin to do other things with it, like cultivating compassion, cultivating insight. But yeah, the first, I think a lot of people assume that meditation equals your mind is quiet. Meditation equals noticing your mind. So you can do meditation, whether your mind is busy or quiet or blissful or full of anger or whatever it is. As long as you're more like observing what's going on and not acting on it. Exactly. And that gives you a chance to um, become conscious about how you're going to react to what's going on, right? Exactly. That that's what gives you an actual choice as you go through your life, instead of just doing the same things you've always done that have gotten you to here, <laughs> you know, to doing things without choice and control. And when it comes to the importance of healing our spirits, please explain why the spiritual path requires letting go of what we love. And even who we think we are, that's a tough, tough thing to think, to contemplate, to grow into our full potential. Yeah. Well, from a Buddhist perspective, you know, in this tradition, we talk about conventional truth and ultimate truth. And the conventional truth of who we are is, you know, my height and my weight and my skin tone and, you know, whether my hair looks crazy today or not. And there's, there's all this stuff that goes into my sense of who I am, but all of that is on the conventional side. And these two are not actually separate, but you know, as you're, if you're a beginner, it's, it's more helpful to think of them separately. Right. And the ultimate truth of who I am again, is this luminosity and wisdom and awakeness that really no words can adequately describe, but we call it Buddha nature. It's really like your body is your vehicle, but that's not all you are. Is that? Yeah. We get like hypnotized. We get sucked into this, you know, the physical aspect of reality or even the emotional or mental aspect. And we forget that beneath all of that is a spiritual foundation. So if we never let go of who we think we are, we're never going to arrive in who we really are. Again, coming back to, you know, Buddhism as describing how we misunderstand the world, you know, it feels like we're giving up who we are, but we're not giving up anything that's not going to die at the end of this lifetime. So how can that be our true nature? Oh, that's fascinating. It's actually very freeing if you're not as attached to uh, i mean you're you're in your life you're doing your thing but you're not as attached to all of that you know there's so much more uh, exactly sense to me and um tell us you're so delightful please tell us how our grief and rebirth podcast audience can connect with you and i know you have a free online course you're creating to introduce beginners to the tibetan teachings and how do these teachings help all the people who take the course and learn to live fuller, richer lives. Is it that they learn how not to be so attached or what is that all about? Yeah. Well, first of all, I do actually have another free online course now too. These are both by email. They're very simple. um, But I have one on the four noble truths. So that's kind of like an introduction to this world. And then um, there's also one on the Bardo states. So that's an introduction to this whole, this whole way of thinking about life cyclically. Um, And also, you know, we're not just thinking about reincarnation, literally, there's also within our lifetimes, 
we go through these big transitions and it is like a death and rebirth process within this life. So, you know, that course is, is, um, intended to help people like to put a narrative framework around the transitions that we experience, because if you just lost somebody, it's really hard. But if for me anyway, you know, if I can understand, like when my mom died, there was a version of me that died too. But now I get to choose who I want to be next. That feels empowering to me. So the point of this course really is to help people understand the process of transitions. If they want to prepare for their own death, that's like bonus. But at the very least, it's there to help people understand and make the most of transitions in this lifetime too. I think it might help them to um, accept themselves more and to... um uh, give themselves permission to move forward. Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, the moving forward part, I think in our culture, we love fresh starts, but we don't like leaving behind the old, you know, we don't like having to say that is over, you know, there was a death and I mourn it and the mourning and the grieving helps you actually move on. And I think that's what's helpful for me about understanding transitions in terms of these Bardo states. Like, yes, there was a death. I feel it's natural that I would feel grief, but if I don't allow myself to feel that, I'll never get to the moving on stage. And but in the meantime, while you're feeling it, you're conscious of the fact that you will eventually be moving on, and that it's a yeah, exactly that is sitting there in the grief. It makes total sense. Yeah. And Claire, what is your tip for finding joy in this life? I the love Claire this question. Tip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think if I'm being honest, you know, my tip for finding joy is to notice what blocks joy. Um, I think so often there are things we could do but there's something in us that as soon as we start to expand into that like vast joyous state, it holds us back for me. Often that's anxiety, you know, so something new and I I get excited. And then there's something that says, Oh no, no, here's all the reasons you shouldn't do that. And like you go into fear a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think the more you can recognize what's actually blocking joy, the more you can release into it as well. Bottom line is heal your stuff, everybody, so you can get those blocks out of the way. You can experience that joy. Exactly. (laughs) Claire, I just love how Buddhism diagnoses the human condition and offers practical solutions for letting go of dissatisfaction and more to live well in our fast-paced world. Who wouldn't want to know a path towards a richer, fuller, happier, and more compassionate life? (laughs) Thank you from my heart for this thought-provoking interview and for the work you do to enlighten people and inspire them to begin to awaken to peace and to joy. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes in all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com and make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued. (laughs) Many blessings and bye for now.